Lodge would like to let uh, the guests who are staying in there know that the lodge will be locked at 10 a.m. So that's a little, about 40 minutes from now. So if you haven't uh, cleared out your room and uh, cleaned it, I would uh, encourage you to do so now. I apologize for the inconvenience, but I uh, appreciate your uh, understanding and cooperation. And uh, so please take care of that before 10. Otherwise, they will be putting the uh, stuff outside. You're interested outside. So we don't want Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to be in God's country. Beautiful up here. I always love to come to Weimar. I don't think I've ever been up here when it's raining. It's always clear, blue sky. It's wonderful. This morning, we are going to discuss what godliness means. However, before we do, we want to ask for God's guidance and God's blessing. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being in this beautiful place. We thank you, Father, for the fresh air. We thank you for the beautiful sunshine. We thank you for the manifestations of your power and of your love. Father, as we study about godliness this morning, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us through the ministry of your word. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the first book of Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16. In the course of this weekend, we have been studying the steps of sanctification that are mentioned in uh Peter, and uh, we're going to discuss this morning godliness. Now that word godliness that's used there is the same uh, word for godliness that is used here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. What I want you to notice in this verse is that you have a U-shape. You have downward mobility and then you have upward mobility in this verse. It says there the following. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Same word. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now I'm going to suggest that each one of the phrases that are used here refers to a particular aspect of the ministry of Christ. It says here, God was manifested in the flesh. This is the incarnation of Christ. Justified in the spirit. I believe that that is a reference to his resurrection. In other words, he came down, he resurrected. Then it says, seen by angels. This is referring to the ascension of Jesus as the angels were singing, open up ye gates, and the king of glory will come in. 
Then you have preached among the Gentiles. After Jesus ascends, he pours out his spirit. And you have the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And as a result, we find here, believed on in the world. And the last phrase is, received up in glory. Actually, it could be translated, taken up in glory. And I believe that this is referring to the return of Jesus to heaven after he has come to pick up his people to take them home. And so what you have in this verse is a U-shape. You have Jesus up here. He comes down. In his incarnation, he dies. He resurrects. He ascends to heaven. The gospel is preached. The world believes. And then Jesus is taken up in glory with his people when he returns for the second time. So basically, the mystery of godliness, this word godliness refers to God humbling himself and then, as a result of his humbling, being exalted. That's where you have the U-shape. He who humbles himself will be exalted. But the Bible speaks about another mystery. It's called not the mystery of godliness, but it's called the mystery of iniquity. And what I want us to notice is that the mystery of iniquity is like an inverted U. In other words, instead of a regular U, you put a U in the opposite direction, and that's what characterizes the mystery of iniquity. Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I know that you've read this passage before. It's dealing with the final manifestation of the Antichrist. And I want you to notice how you have upward mobility and then downward mobility, whereas in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, we had downward mobility and then upward mobility. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Yeah. It says there. Yeah, I can. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of Christ's coming, will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. Now notice this in verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Here's a mere creature that exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Then it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. A little later on in this passage, we're told that this antichrist that is being spoken of here will go into perdition and he will be destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. So you'll notice that the mystery of iniquity is characterized by a man who wants to ascend to the height of God. And therefore he is cast down and he is destroyed when Jesus comes. The mystery of iniquity, of godliness, on the other hand, is characterized by one who is up here, he is God, and he comes down to our level and then, as a result, he is exalted. So we have these two mysteries. Very interesting mysteries of Scripture. 
These mysteries are illustrated also in practical life here on earth. Not only do we find Jesus illustrating this principle and also uh, the Antichrist illustrating this principle, but during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus had to face the mystery of iniquity all throughout the course of his ministry. Notice Matthew chapter 23 and verses 1 through 12. Hello. We're going to read several verses here, and I want you to notice what characterized the religious leaders of Christ's day. Hello. Matthew chapter 23 and verses 1 through 12. This is uh, the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. It says there in Matthew chapter 23, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. By the way, that is a position of authority, a position of prestige, a position of power. So it says the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And now notice all of the different descriptions of how the Pharisees exalted themselves. You notice, first of all, that they sat in Moses' seat that gave them a high position of authority. But now notice what we find in verse 5. But all they work, their works, they do to be what? To be seen by men. In other words, they're exalting themselves. Everything they do is to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries. The phylacteries were little boxes of part, uh, of, of little boxes that had pieces of parchment with scriptures written on them. And they would actually hang these uh, on their foreheads and they were hanging, hanging them on their right hand, and they believed that this was a sign of great piety because they had scripture hanging on their hand and hanging on their forehead. Well, God wanted, to, wanted them to place scripture inside their forehead, in the brain. And he wanted them to, to uh, the, the scriptures to affect their behavior, their works. Notice once again verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. You see the upward mobility here? They sit in Moses' seat. They do everything to be seen by men. They put phylacteries to show their piety. They love to occupy the best places and the best seats. They love to be greeted and saluted by people and to be called rabbi, rabbi, that is teacher, teacher. But notice what Jesus says. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Jesus is saying, don't covet the idea that you're a teacher and that you're a rabbi and that you're so great and that you sit in Moses' seat. Don't do things to be seen by men. Don't do things in order to exalt yourself. Because that's what characterizes the mystery of iniquity. Now notice verse 11. This is, this is very important. 
but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. What kind of mobility do you have there? He who is up here is greatest when he comes what? When he comes down here. That's the mystery of God. But the Pharisees manifested the mystery of iniquity because they were concerned only about their greatness. And then notice what Jesus, the conclusion to this whole passage in verse 12. Jesus gives the, the, the central meaning of what he wants to get across. He says, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see the two mysteries in that last verse, that verse 12? He who exalts himself like the man of sin will be humbled. Notice the exalting is done by the person himself. The humbling is done by somebody else. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself, see the humbling comes from your part. He who humbles himself, someone else is going to exalt him. So we have these two mysteries. The mystery of godliness is characterized by the fact that when you're up here, you have a lot of education, you have a lot of ability, you have a lot of knowledge, you use all of that to come down and to serve and to self-sacrifice and to give. The mystery of iniquity means that you're down here and you want to occupy the first place. You want to be up here. So basically, the two mysteries are illustrated by two yous. The mystery of godliness by your regular you. He who comes down will be placed up. And the mystery of iniquity, who, he who goes up will eventually be thrown down. By the way, where did the mystery of iniquity originate? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 14. See, we can never really understand the mystery of godliness unless we understand the mystery of iniquity because they're opposites. So let's talk about the mystery of iniquity, where it started, where this idea of being number one started, of exalting yourself, of wanting a position higher than the position that God had established. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. Notice the upward mobility idea here. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. What happened with Lucifer? He what? He fell. In other words, he came down. Why was he thrown down? How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down. Do you see the mobility here? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now, why did this happen? Why was he thrown down? Notice what the verse continues saying. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Upward mobility. And by the way, you notice the little pronoun, I. Lucifer was guilty. Uh, he had a very serious eye disease. It's called myopia. You know what myopia is? It's nearsightedness. He could only see himself. You see, nobody else did himself. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the Lord. I will ascend above the heights 
the clouds, ah, will be like the Most High. What kind of mobility is that? Is that your inverted view? It most certainly is. What is he doing? He's down here and he's wanting to ascend to the heights and be number one. But what does God do with him? Notice what we find, find in the following verse. Yet you shall be what? Brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Let me ask you, did Lucifer exalt himself? Yes, he did. So who's going to humble him? God's going to humble him. That's right. Now let's notice another passage that speaks about this mystery of iniquity. Ezekiel 28, beginning with verse 14. I want you to notice once again the same idea, upward mobility, downward mobility. You know, the fact is that the more education and the more ability we have, the greater should be our service. You see, godliness has to do with self-sacrifice and service. That's what it's all about. It's the characteristic of God. In other words, God does not ask us to be this way. Only God actually shows us, as we're going to notice, that this is the way that we need to live. Notice Ezekiel 28, verse 14. Your heart was what? See, there it is. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You see the upward movement there? And then it says, I what? I cast you to the ground. There's the downward mobility. Because he exalted himself, God said, I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. There's no greater humbling than being turned to ashes. And then it continues saying, I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more. So what is it that characterizes the mystery of iniquity? Exalting yourself. And that brings, as a result, destruction. But now we want to talk about the mystery of godliness. You notice that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 said, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested how? In the flesh. There was the great God who was up there, who had all power, all glory, was all great, chose on his own to come down, to sacrifice himself, to give. Let's read about it in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 5 through 11. And immediately you're going to catch the difference between this passage and what we read from Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that means that he had the very nature of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Actually, a better translation is, he did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be hung on to. In other words, he did not say, I'm God, I'm the same as the Father, and therefore, because the Father and I are the same, I'm not going to humble myself. I'm going to hang on to my power and to my greatness. He did do that. It says here that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery, as it says here. He did not consider equality with God as something to be hung on to or grasped. In other words, he did not claim his rights. You know, we have a lot of people these days saying, you need to claim your rights. You need to defend your rights. And now notice this. Though he could have claimed his rights as God, in verse 7 it says, but made himself. Who did the humbling? He did. But made himself of no reputation. Actually, a better translation is, he emptied himself of self. It's not I, but the Father. And that's the way he lived while he was on this earth. He said, what I speak, the Father gave me. What I do is the Father's power. In myself, I can do nothing, Jesus said. Because even though he had all of the powers and rights of God, he came down in self-sacrifice to live for us and to die for us. But made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant. He who had the form of God takes the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men. Can you imagine what kind of sacrifice that is? For God to become man. And young people not only becoming man until he resurrected and went back to heaven. Jesus, according to the desire of ages, has adopted humanity forever. He's going to be our elder brother forever. In other words, we are closer to God than if we had never sinned. Because if we had, if we had never sinned, Jesus would be God, but he wouldn't be man. But because of sin, God is man. That's an awesome privilege, isn't it? Can you imagine what a privilege it's going to be to have the capital of the universe here? I mean, the universe is a pretty large place. And yet the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that heaven is going to come down. The new Jerusalem, the capital of the universe, is going to be placed on planet earth. And the tabernacle of God is going to be with men. He's going to be with us. It's amazing. But he didn't only descend to the, to the level of men. Notice verse 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Does that have to do with the mystery of godliness? Absolutely. He humbled himself. See, the humbling is something that we have to do. And the exalting is something that God does. But when we exalt ourselves, then God takes care of the humbling. <laughs> and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Notice this. And became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. We'll never be able to understand in its fullness that sacrifice. He will ever bear the scars on his hands. 
on his brow, in his side, and on his feet to remind us about the principle of the mystery of godliness. He came down. Notice verse 9. That's the first part of the you. He humbled himself, died the death of the cross. What's the result of that? He who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice verse 9. Therefore, what does therefore indicate? Because of what he did, therefore, because he humbled himself, because he didn't claim his rights as God, notice it says here, God also has highly exalted him. Notice that Jesus didn't come back to heaven and say, Okay, Father, I did it. I rescued the human race. I want my throne back. I want my rights back. I want to be God again. I only did that for a little while. No. Notice here that Jesus does not exalt himself. It says that God has highly exalted him. Somebody else does the exalting because he humbled himself. Therefore, it says, God also has highly exalted him. And notice what God does also. And given him the name. Who gave him the name? Do you realize that Jesus has subjected himself to his Father forever? The trouble is we have a skewed brain. We think that subjection is inferiority. Subjection is a divine principle. It doesn't mean that when we subject to the wrong persons that it's correct. But what I'm saying is subjecting to God's will. Jesus, even before the creation of this world, had subjected himself to his Father. He performed the Father's will in the creation of the universe. All things were created through him. In other words, Jesus was God's speech. And he implemented the thought of his Father. Those are words that Ellen White uses. See, the Father was the, was the, the, the master architect, and Jesus was the master builder. So Jesus implemented the thoughts of his Father. When Lucifer rebelled in heaven, you know, Jesus didn't say, Hey, don't you know who I am? You think that I look just like an angel like you because I'm Michael the archangel? Listen, I'm not only Michael the archangel. I'm God, and don't you forget it. That's not what he said. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that God the Father called all the angels into his presence. And God the Father had to explain the position of Jesus. In fact, Ellen White says that Jesus would not defend himself. He would not explain his position. He would leave any explaining to his Father. He had subjected himself to his Father. And throughout eternity, he will subject himself to the will of his Father. That's a divine principle. Subjection to God's will. And so it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you understanding a little bit what uh, godliness is all about?
Godliness simply means self-sacrifice. To describe it in one word, it means humility. Have you ever thought of God as a humble God? Do you know that's one of the greatest characteristics of God is his humility? He not only asks for it, he gives it. See, Jesus not only says, be humble, but he actually revealed humility in his life. By the way, all nature except man reveals this principle of self-sacrifice and giving as a central principle of life. You know, I live in uh, Fresno. How many of you are from Fresno? How many of you are from the San Joaquin Valley? Let me ask it that way. Raise your hand. From San, you live in San Joaquin Valley. Well, we have several. I think there are several others that didn't raise their hands. That's all right. It is kind of embarrassing to live down there. <laughs> well, you know, when it's 110 degrees in July and the air quality is terrible and you can hardly breathe, now that's what I'm talking about. You know, obviously it's a very agriculturally rich place. But, you know, I've often thought about that great valley. You know, on the eastern side of the valley is the Sierra Nevada. And in the winter, the snows fall, fill the Sierra Nevada. They become beautiful, white. What happens in the springtime? In the springtime, the days get warmer, and now the snow melts. And the snow becomes water, and it trickles down the sides of the mountain and goes into the valley and provides water to irrigate all of those trees and all of those plants in the valley. And then the water, some of it goes to the ocean, by the way, then the water evaporates much of it, goes back up to heaven into the clouds, and then the clouds once again drop their water, and the process begins all over again. What would happen if the cycle of water ever became interrupted? What would happen if, if, if the clouds said, oh, we look so nice and white and fluffy? We're not going to give our water to anybody because then we wouldn't look so pretty all life would cease to exist. What if the mountains said, oh, look how people admire us. Snow-capped peaks. Beautiful. If we gave our water, we would look all rugged and ugly. Obviously, I know that mountains can't talk. But I'm personifying them to make a point. The mountains give their waters. The little trickle down the mountain gives their water. The, the, the streams give their waters. The rivers give their waters. Then the ocean gives its waters once again to the, to the clouds. And the clouds give their water. In other words, it's the whole cycle of giving, 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 giving. It's the cycle of life. The reason why there are so many problems in this world is because people are not givers. People are takers. And the law of taking is the law of death. The law of self-giving is the law of life, the law of humility, the law of serving. Disinterested benevolence. Serving without any mercenary motives. 
That's difficult for us, isn't it? Like Job. The devil says, uh, do you really think Job serves you for nothing? That's the key verse in the whole book. You think that, God's, that Job serves you for nothing? Ha <laughs> ha, he serves you for the loaves and the fishes. But at the end of the story, it's proven that Job serves God for nothing. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You have the story of three young men in the furnace. They come before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, do you know what, what's waiting for you? Do you see that, that furnace there? Heated seven times greater than ever before. I think the number seven means totality. In other words, it couldn't be heated any hotter. I don't think he had a thermometer. He says, that's what's waiting for you. The three young men say, we don't even have to think about it, king. We've got our minds made up. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But if not, we are still his servants. We serve him for nothing. Without any mercenary motives. Unfortunately, these days, many preachers say, commit your life to God and you'll get rich. False gospel. Because anything that we have, riches, talents, education, whatever, unless it's placed on the altar of sacrifice to benefit other people, is worthless. In fact, it becomes destructive. The world is totally messed up in its priorities. That's why the world is in such bad shape. By the way, how many of you have ever been to, um, to Israel? Anybody ever been to Israel? I see a few hands here. It's an interesting experience, isn't it? It's awesome. You know, I have the privilege of, of going to Israel, and then several years later, I went to Jordan. And uh, so I've been on, on both sides. It's interesting, you know, when you go to the Sea of Galilee, it's beautiful. You know, sparkling water. It's surrounded by beautiful greenery, especially the Mount of the Beatitudes on the north side of the Sea of Tiberias is beautiful. Unfortunately, they've kind of ruined it by building all these cathedrals over these sites. But anyway, it's still beautiful. The Sea of Galilee is full of, full of fish. You can hear the songs of birds. It's full of life. But then the Jordan River that originates at Mount Hermon with the snow-capped mountain there, Mount Hermon, in the northern sector. Actually, it's, not, it's beyond the borders of Israel. The, the name Jordan means, uh, it means the descender because it descends very quickly. And then it forms the Jordan River, goes into the Sea of Galilee, then it goes out of the Sea of Galilee on the south end, and the Jordan River continues flowing, and it ends up, ends up in the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is very appropriately named. It's dead. Everything around it is bare. It has no living thing within it, not even microorganisms. In fact, the mineral content of the Dead Sea is so great that it would be very difficult for you to drown because you float. And don't shave in the morning before you go to swim because your skin will burn like crazy. Why the difference? Why is the Sea of Galilee teeming with life and with beauty and the Dead Sea is dead? You see, the Sea of Galilee receives 
and gives. Receives in the north and gives in the south. Receives and gives, receives and gives. But the Dead Sea is a stagnant lake. The water ends there. The Jordan River ends there, and the water goes nowhere. It stays there, and it becomes stagnant. Once again, the principle is the law of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. Giving and never ending your giving. I'd like to end by reading Philippians 2 verse 5 and then a couple of statements from Ellen White on what godliness means. Are you understanding what godliness means? In the light of what we've studied? Just remember the you. Not the inverted you. The regular you. You start up here, you go down and you serve, and God will exalt you. In fact, you know, if I could just read James 4 verse 10, don't even look it up. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of God, and He will lift you up. I like that. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do you know that this passage in Philippians chapter 2 has created more theological debate almost than any other passage in the New Testament among scholars? They argue about, what did Jesus leave in heaven? He emptied himself. Well, what did he, did he leave his divine attributes? You know, how, did he become a full man? You know, they have all of these debates. But the whole purpose of this passage is to teach the law of the mystery of godliness. Notice how the passage begins in Philippians 2 and verse 5. Even before speaking about Jesus humbling himself and being highly exalted by his Father, the Apostle Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the mystery of godliness was not only in him, but God wants the mystery of godliness to be where? To be in us. The whole purpose of the passage, the Apostle Paul is saying is, let the mind of Jesus, who humbled himself, even to the death of the cross, and was exalted, let that mind be in you also. I'm going to read a couple of statements from Ellen White in closing. The first is from Lift Him Up, page 74. The doctrine of the incarnation of Christ in human flesh is a mystery. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. It is the great and profound mystery of godliness. The incarnation is what? The mystery of godliness. She continues saying, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ took upon Himself human nature. A nature inferior to His heavenly nature. Nothing so shows the wonderful condescension of God as this. The condescension of God as this. The second statement that I want to read is from Volume 2 of Selected Messages, page 185. By the way, do you know that Ellen White says that it would have been an almost infinite sacrifice for Jesus to take the nature of Adam before he fell? It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for Jesus to take the sinless nature of Adam before the fall. 
But Jesus took the sinful nature of man after 4,000 years of sin. God did that. If that doesn't humble our pride, nothing will. This is the statement. The incarnation of Christ was an act of self-sacrifice. That's what godliness is. His life, notice the key terms, his life was one of continual self-denial. The highest glory of the love of God to man was manifested in the sacrifice of his only begotten son, who was the express image of his person. This is the great mystery of godliness. It is the privilege and the duty of every professed follower of Christ to have the mind of Christ. Without self-denial and cross-bearing, we cannot be His disciples. And perhaps I can read one more in closing. Volume 5 of the Bible Commentary, page 1130. Ellen White says, The doctrine of the incarnation of Christ in human flesh is a mystery. Oh, I think I already read this one. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and for generations, it is the great and profound mystery of godliness. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ took upon Himself human nature, a nature inferior to His heavenly nature. Nothing shows, so shows the wonderful condescension of God as this. So all we need to do this morning is pray that the Lord will give us the spirit of the mystery of godliness. That God will implant Jesus through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that the one objective of our lives will be self-sacrifice and service to others. That's what life is all about. Life is short. And the efforts that we invest in God's kingdom, in reaching other people for Christ, no matter how low we have to descend, will produce everlasting dividends because those souls will shine throughout eternity. Everything else we have is going to perish. Our houses, our cars, our toys, our money, everything is going to perish. The only thing that is going to survive is the money that we've invested, the time we've invested, the effort we invested in winning souls for the kingdom because that will be an eternal investment. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us what true godliness is all about. Not only because you said it, but because you showed it. We thank you by, for providing leadership by example. Father, we ask that through the influence of your Spirit, you will come to us and you will plant the mystery of godliness in our hearts. That we might humble ourselves as our beloved Jesus. That the world might see that there is power in self-sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us. We thank you for fulfilling your promise that you will do this when we plead in faith. Thank you for hearing us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bohr, for sharing with us about the mystery of godliness. Our next uh, meeting will be at 10.15, but before that I do have a few announcements. Uh, we want to let you know that Raphael Scarfullery will be selling some of his uh, CDs uh, at the table that is right by the cafeteria. Also at that table, we do have some post WIC postcards. 
which uh, you can uh, share with your friends. And you might want to also put the website of audioverse.org on there so that they know uh, where to listen, where they can listen to the sermons as well. So even though they were not here, they can still experience uh, WIC. Um, we need to see, uh, Rachel Nelson needs to see Orozco, Mr. Orozco, and also Karik. Uh, Oh, Eric Nelson needs to see Orozco, and also Karina Belbersky. So if you could please come forward. Oh, actually, Eric is going to meet you in the fountain. So if you could please meet him there uh, right after this meeting. <laughs> Not in the fountain, but next to the fountain in the back over there. <laughs> um, Weimar would also like to uh, let you know that if you are parked on campus, you do need to have an orange uh, label on your dashboard which indicates that you are part of this conference because they are uh, kind of streamlining things right now and I understand there may be some tow trucks around so if you don't have an orange label